Welcome to Beyond Food and Wine, a Le Cordon Bleu podcast. In this podcast, we get some real insight into the food and hospitality industry from a variety of renowned chefs, industry experts, and Le Cordon Bleu alumni. Join us as we hear the fascinating stories and unique experiences behind some of the best known names in the industry. So today for this Wednesday guest lecture series. Hello everyone, thank you. We have Tom Batcock, who's gracing us with his presence today. Tom has worked virtually his entire life with cheeses and he's in one of his article or one of the article in the press, he's been referred as the cheese brain of Britain. Alongside a day job of selling cheeses to chefs, he has set about studying this one product to a ridiculous depth and possibly knows more about this product than anyone um, in, in Britain. And his association with Codemble has been a long-standing one, which is still ongoing. Tom, can I ask you to come on board, please? Pretty much all the participants will be very glad to see you for those who know you and who you have graced Thank your you. classes with. I hope they're all well. Is everybody well out there? So without further ado, I'm just probably, uh, well, I'll give it to you in terms of just taking the, the session forward. If you could just go through your journey with a wonderful world of cheeses, touching base on your personal and professional life. Excellent. Well, a very good afternoon to everybody. Um, it's been quite a journey. Um, so to start with, um, I grew up in a, a farm uh, just south of Stratford, down on down on the Avon, and my parents had many animals, but amongst them were goats. And and I and I would look after the goats along with the pigs and the ducks and the geese and all the other things. But uh, my mum taught me to milk a goat uh, properly. Uh, and I go on and make what we did with it, um, which was pretty odd because we would feed our goats. We would feed our goats almost anything. We, we treated them a bit like waste disposal units. So, so telephone directories, newspapers, everything. A goat will eat everything. Um, so our cheeses were pretty horrific. Um, but I went on, I, I went to agricultural college. I studied the subject properly. Um, I've worked in industry making cheeses and making butter and some very strange things. Uh, and then I I came out of college and, and thought, well, what do I do? So I went traveling and found myself literally standing with a backpack in Australia thinking I ought to earn a living. I'd been robbed on the way out to Australia. Uh, and so I, I had nothing. I, I had a pair of trousers on and thinking, oh, my God, I've got to be employed very quickly. Uh, and so I thought, what do I know more about that? Somebody will give me a job. And, and I put a, an ad out, um, as you could out there, for a, a cheese specialist. And I had a job within a day helping people set up to become cheesemakers. It was a kind of a trendy time. This is sort of the uh, mid, mid-80s. Uh, and so I, I worked with a number of young startup cheesemakers in Australia and returning home uh, via Asia, via, via India and Nepal and so forth, um, and arrived thinking, well, what do I do? Do I go and work on my parents' farm? Do what? But I really wanted to live in London. And I found myself with a head full of cheese knowledge and no job, uh, what do you do? Uh, so uh, I thought I'd sell cheese and I put, put an ad out or I forget how I did it. And nevertheless, I think I phoned in a couple of cheese, cheese wholesalers. And uh, one of them, a, a, company, a small company called The Cheese Seller, um, said, yeah, come on in, come on in. And The Cheese Seller decided that they would rather than I will carry a few cheeses and hopefully somebody will like them, reverted that. So they actually went to the top chefs of Britain and said, what would you like us to have? And it was an interesting way around and it was a very effective way around because the people we were talking to were, were wonderful. Uh, my first customer was uh, Pierre Kaufman, for example. Nicola Dimas was another one. Um, Peter Kromberg. Now, the, these are immense 
structural shifts. In other words, virtually everybody you know in the in the top end of the Michelin world today went through the kitchens of one of those three. Um, and uh, I mean, yeah, wonderful. So I would drive my van around there, and literally, I'd have, have these magnificent three-star Michelin chefs come on board and they knew their product and and I have to say today's chefs don't know their product anywhere like these guys did and they would have wonderful uh, sommeliers who would come on and they had lived and breathed this subject and I would say that cheese is mank isn't it no they say oh no fantastic that cheese is going to be gorgeous what you don't understand tom is what the english have and what we have it's so different and and and, and this kind of used by data it's a nonsense you judge with judge with your nose and, and and i learned everything everything really from the beginning again in other words i knew structurally how to make cheese work with cheese i knew the industry i knew the cheese making in britain but i had to relearn it again from a French Michelin perspective. And, and I, wonderful, uh, what a great way to learn. Um, and in those days, the laws were a bit iffy and, and we would have cheeses with maggots in and a bit hairy and a bit scary. And, and, I, and I learned my parameters really around these guys um, where you could bend rules and where you couldn't bend rules. You, you get the idea. Um, so uh, a very, very interesting place to learn. And um, that was 30 years ago. Uh, since then, these chefs are no longer, well, I'm no longer driving a van. The cheese cellar has grown very large. We've been bought up. We're now doing, well, we were doing up to a few weeks ago, about 110 million pounds worth of, of trade. Um, our customers are, are, are across the world. Uh, we look after Emirates, British Airways. We look after pret a Nando's. These are wonderful customers to have on board. But it's what the real joy, of course, is if you started 30 years ago, the junior chefs, the chefs de party, the, you, you name it, they, they are now the senior execs. And I've done that journey with them. So it, it's great to walk into a kitchen and meet people I've known for 30 years and their journey has been equally, equally upward. And it's, it's been great. Uh, a really wonderful 30 great, years. Great, great. great. 30 great. years. That's a long, long association with the cheese. Uh, long enough with one product. And you think that's insane. I mean, even the veg man works with more than just leeks. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Interesting you say that with one. Interesting you say that with one product. But if I can ask you, and probably this must be a question for many. And this is certainly one of these questions I have, and probably I might have asked you several times in our in our association for you know we have been uh, doing few things for the last five years uh, on and off. Why do some people love cheese and some don't, and why has it become such a global product? Oh, I think there's several questions there, but but I think if we start with that, what defines a cheese lover? Well, I, I have to say I think parents account for a lot of this uh, you go along and you find that you know little johnny on his way to school has, has got a, a laughing cow in his lunchbox i mean it's hardly surprising that little johnny never escalates to an epoise de Burgoyne. you know uh, for those who aren't familiar with this is this is a, a good honking french burgundy master you know wonderful cheese but little johnny will never get there little johnny hasn't even reached the first rung in his world cheeses don't even smell you know in his world cheeses don't change and and but real cheeses are dynamic and they're doing things and they, they honk and they stick in and they have an awe and as as most of you i believe we've got some wonderful cheese lovers amongst amongst the audience um you know you need so much more than just flavor this is something that gets into your head and hovers in your in, in, inside your brain. It's wonderful. Much more depth to it. But little Johnny never gets there. So I, I feel that you can't blame little Johnny. You can blame his parents. But you know what? It's not even his parents' fault. You go out there into the world of, of you know, suburbia and all they've got is a Tesco's around the corner. It's not terribly surprising that mum is putting a laughing cow in the lunchbox because there isn't anything else. So I think you have to blame society as a whole. 
but you could throw the subject that that liking subject slightly differently and say right actually there are people out there who are not lactose tolerant they really will react to low levels of lactose in cheese you can't you know that's something uh, there's other people with casein issues in other words cow casein the milk proteins in cow's milk will trigger others i've got other people i know who are triggered by the penicillin in fungus uh, which of course many of my cheeses have naturally and and unnaturally and uh, and this will trigger some people and 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 i believe them when they say i, I it makes me sick there's no reason i shouldn't believe them it makes perfect sense that cheeses have very low levels of penicillin in them and and it triggers people so there's a number of elements to it but i suspect the biggest element to why people don't like cheese is that they were never brought up with it uh, uh, other people embrace it and once they start embracing it i find that they escalate in other words uh, somebody who starts liking serious cheese two years later i find them eating mad stuff absolutely bonkers stuff that sort of stuff that you you and i would hesitate to eat people are on a kind of a, a ladder and particularly if they're into wines you'll find they will start off on you know, a, a cheese goes very well with a glass of red wine, and very quickly you find them escalating into the dessert whites or the great big white burgundies. You had fabulous big white white wines and, and sherries and whiskies and cognacs, and there's so much more to be had out there. Once you just open up and you say, "Well, actually, cheese is all about sitting with friends and just getting off your head and just having a great time." You know, it's about spending two hours nibbling and talking and laughing it's it's a great subject great so sorry great. not a simple answer i know i know we are talking about some kind of a, a reference which is so vast in nature that it is very difficult to touch base on everything but i'll try to kind of make it brief and probably just contain through this for this particular uh, lecture um so you are a person you know from last 30 years of experience who has spent a lot of time and energy uh, in understanding the depth of cheeses. You studied a lot. Could you highlight some interesting techniques in cheese making which you can share with the with the participants here? Oh, well, um, I, I think the, fir the, the first thing to recognize is how very, very simple it is. I mean, cheese making really is it, it is just staring at milk and eventually it will go solid. I mean, don't get me wrong, modern milk is so clean, you'll be staring for several days. Uh, cheese making is, it's not like, well, I mean, wine is, it has its easier moments too, but uh, there are complicated things like proven bread and, uh, and making fine baguettes. I mean, that is complicated. Cheese making is simple. I mean, the earlier style, the I do nothing and just milk will sour. And then you just take your sock off and you pour your, pour your milk into your, your souring, solidifying milk into your sock. It doesn't get simpler than that. Um, in, in truth, we have got more advanced. But if we just pause briefly and just, just talk about simple things like, like the pleasure it is to teach at the Cordon Bleu. Because into that subject, you realize as I sit and or stand uh, and teach students, I get given information all the time. And, and some of them are spectacular and so simple and so wonderful. And, uh, it's like, um, it must be 15 years ago now, a, a Spanish student put her hand up and said, uh, oh, my mum uses chicken stomachs to make cheese. You think, oh my God, that's that's so good, uh, so good. I, I, I know that chicken stomachs were used to making cheese. I have read the books. I know the Romans used chicken stomachs to make cheese with it, it with the enzyme, the, the, the rennet, pepsin in, in, in the stomach. And yet I've never met a living person who used chicken stomachs. Uh, I love that stuff. I love, you know, that kind of, it completes me. Uh, the Indian Indian girl who, who who put her hand up and said, "My mum, she she reduces whey on well, she was using firewood, and her villagers have just asked her to stop using firewood to start boiling down 
oh, well, she she had switched to gas, and and and, and her villagers wanted her to go back to boiling down her way on firewood because it made the sweets that she made, the, the yetost, if you look for a European equivalent, taste so much better when it was slightly burned, slightly caramelized on the firewood where she had too much control over the gas. I, I, I love the way that you, you'd never know that. You'd never have realized that actually it, it, it's the simple stuff that, 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 that it, it, it brings so much color to the subject. I mean, behind me, I've got a, I mean, that's a Jameed at the top there from Jordan. And most of the students should be familiar with the Jameed, I hope, who've been paying attention. That, that's a gift from one of the students. I love that stuff. They bring me presents. I get given stuff. And, I, and, and uh, I've had some wonderful times um, with typically relatives who've brought in cheese and, and I get to meet them and we have a lovely you know, cup of tea and I get given a wonderful cheese from far, far Central Asia. Wonderful stuff. Right, right on the Chinese borders, and which would never happen if I was teaching somewhere else. You just would not get that lovely mix that you get at the Cordon Bleu. For someone who is not a fan of blue cheese, do you have a suggestion as a gentle starter and what wine would be a nice accompaniment to have uh, it? Okay, it's a good question. And, 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 the, and the student hit, hit it on the head. It's really what you're dealing with it to, to counter it, to balance out the aggression. Uh, I would say, don't go with a simple one. Don't go. I mean, there's some simple blues out there. Cambazola, for example. Uh, you know, it, I don't even know why it exists. Uh, it, actually, I do know why it exists, but that's another matter. Uh, uh, but I would go with the big blue. Go with a monster, a wonderful rock form, for example. But don't, uh, it, uh, amongst the strongest of all the blues, but fine, before you, before you, 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 you serve it, go out and find a magnificent honey. And I, and I would point you in the direction of a, a Spanish wholesaler, uh, somebody like Brindisa or, or go to somebody like that. And you can buy the, the Miel de Montaigne, the wonderful honey from the Pyrenees. Oh, it's, you start to cry. Honestly, the, the accompaniment, the, the Roquefort and, and, and wild honeys, delicious. It, other, other people might reach for a glass of Tokai, you know, something wonderful, old, noble rots, or the great sort of Niagara and ice finds. That, that, there's a lot of, of sweet sweet whites out there that go really well with rock four. But I would say if you really don't like blues and you're looking for something that almost blankets you, like a kind of comfort blanket, uh, I would say get yourself a nice honey, a really good wild honey, and and just just try the two and and and, and don't look at it. You're, you're, people are judging with their eyes and they're saying, oh my God, it's covered in fungus. Yeah, it's pretty well in penetrated with fungus. We're above that. I'd like to think everybody at the Cordon Bleu doesn't do that anymore. But I know, I suspect a few more. I think, great, thank you. With, with wines, probably you mentioned about noble rot. My suggestion would be something in the same lines, maybe like a Sauternes or a Mombasiak from the Bodo region. That would be you something- You don't want to go too sweet. You don't want yes. too sweet. I think concentrate on fruitiness and not and less sweetness. Yes. Yeah, yeah, always a good choice. And and I would open three or four bottles. I mean, what's the point? I mean, look, these are times, <laughs> hard times. Okay, so another question. Best cheeses for cooking and why? Mm. Maybe one or two. There's there's a few out there. So, so one of which is to recognize that the older the cheese, the more resonance it's going to give you in terms of your flavors. So, so you're looking at something and it's got a use by date three, three or four weeks ago. My, my cheddar behind me is, was made in 2013. So don't feel shy about keeping a cheese a bit longer than it should. Um, so, so old cheeses give you depth. Old cheeses that have been allowed to dry off in, in your fridge because you forgot to cling film them are not the same. If you've allowed them to desiccate, it is not the same as drying. So, so we're looking at a cheese that has just reached old age, and you'll find that you can grate it, you can bring great depth of flavor. The ancient Greeks would grate all their cheese. I mean, for them, a cheese was a spice. 
So in other words, you use the it's the old cheese that gave the resonance to the dish. But in okay. terms of simplicity and ease, I would grab myself a, a cheese like a Robuchon or okay. a or a melting Alpine cheese, raclette, Robuchon, Morbier, and it's a universal product. It is magnificent on toast, uh, mashed potato, it, 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 a bit of a few ba- a bits of bacon in a frying pan, finish it off with a lump of, of, of Robuchon and it collapses and oh, it sticks all the bacon together. Magnificent. Just, it's a wonderful day. So these cheeses are, of course, cooked curd cheeses. They are made for a little bit of heat and, and they will bind and you'll get a stickiness to them. And, and, and mashed potato, um, gooey cheese, bits of bacon, it can't go wrong. Um, so yes, I would go any alpine, semi-soft, um, Morbier, raclette, Robuchon. All right, Nissen, what, what's, what's your next question? Right, just on to that, any special cheese to cook with seafood? Maybe one, just briefly, we'll just swiftly move on to another one. Seafood, uh, so we're looking at, uh, do, can we assume that the seafood is very light and, and, and doesn't really want to be swamped? Is that a fair a fair, fair, fair start or yeah. should we go for something that needs finishing under a grill because a, a simple pecorino or, or when i say simple i mean i like a nice dry slightly slightly uh, you know how they get um kind of oxidized hot spicy and i, I would go for one of those so in other words it's, it's it's been around a long time and you'll get these with a a kind of a, the skin on the old pecorino, really quite aggressive, mm-hmm. uh, chilliish, and I would grate that on a on a on a on a, a bit an oven an oven fish and just go lovely gratin on the top. A nice flash one. Uh, a question here: uh, with, Does vegetarian rennet give an equally good product? It's a good question. the The answer is that we we find quite a high degree of of bitterness on with veg rennet cheeses um it's subtle you need to have both styles of cheese there to really recognize it and i'm so but i would argue that if natural rennet is affecting your judgment on the cheese and it's and veg rennet is is, is a, uh, a direction for you and i why not absolutely i've got wonderful cheesemakers who are longing for your business and they make vegetarian rennet cheeses so i would the last thing i would do is say don't eat a vegetarian rennet cheese however we find the classic cheeses really the deeply entrenched uh, medieval cheeses all made with traditional rennet and they do lose something when mm. they're veg rennet uh, and sometimes it's because the people who switch over to using vegetable rennet are slightly more industrial. They're slightly more commercial. And whereas the uh, traditional people are typically the hairy ones, the slightly scary ones uh, uh, living up in the hills. And, and they would have never used veg rennet and they're the real deal. And so we're not really comparing like for like, you know, in an industrial level, you're, you can't compare the film products. It's just not fair on either party. So I would mm-hmm. say there are a great many vegetarian cheeses. Vegeta- well, be careful here, of course. Uh, uh, we're talking vegetable rennet, not vegetarian, because milk itself is, is not vegetarian. So you can't have a vegetarian cheese. <laughs> have you had any luck making dairy-free, che- dairy-free cheeses? I, I've met a lot of casein-issued ish- people. And they they seem to be able to get through this by avoiding cow's milk cheeses. And now, don't get me wrong, I, I I'm quite the world is a complicated place, and they and they're definitely caseins in goats and 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 sheep's milk. But the 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 answer, yeah, maybe to to switch across to goat and sheep, uh, she might also find a difference with age of the cheese. In other words, the casein isn't a isn't a static thing. It appears to change in the cheese as the cheese ages. In other words, an old cheddar might well uh, affect Catherine, whereas the young goat cheese, Mm. though the casein may be very, very similar, 
won't affect her. It's only three days old. And, and so I would say um, if she could experiment, I think it might open up a whole box of wonderful smelly things for her. I hope it does. Yeah. Um, have you tried any cheese that is fermented with Aspergillus orizae akakoji? So he's talking, if I'm not wrong, he's talking about the miso funguses from the Asian miso funguses that are introduced to uh, soybeans to make the advanced uh, tempeh and, and, and toffee products. They're wonderful. Uh, and there's no reason they, that they shouldn't actually function. They shouldn't work. I, um, in truth, I don't know enough about them to know they're not being used. I, I, um, there aren't any, of course, historical cheeses using them. We would use typically, and then they're typically bread related. So in other words, your Roquefort you find growing in rye and, and, and uh, uh, yeah, there's others out there. But nevertheless, so, so there's virtually no examples to, that I can, I've seen. But um, I, would, I, I would suggest that there's a complete direction there to, to, to look in, uh, whether they're internal funguses. I don't know enough about that fungus. Is it an inside one, a, 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 a blue, gray, black? Or is it an external one, white, yellows, pinks? Are you aware, Nitin, that, that we've got two, two families of fungus, one that mm -hmm. lives in cheese and one lives outside? They're both, um, uh, they're both basically, they breathe, they both need air, but their characteristics are quite different. They, they, you don't really want a, a rock 40 on the outside of your cheese. And A, we black, blue. But it also it just won't be happy. It just you need to keep a, a, a fungus happy. And I can't answer for for the Asian. Yeah, Asian he was he was he was, uh, he was specifically uh, looking for the white fluffy external one. Ah, no, they're typically candidums of one type or another, or or the penicillin. Penicillin. I, I would say it's worth the experiment. And whether you're going to get the depths of flavour, which I suspect he's looking for, he's looking for kind of miso. Uh, ramen, the kind of the depth of, of protein degradation, whether we're going to get it because the cheese is still young. Don't forget, it's only a, a camembert is what a, an eight week cheese. And mm -hmm. yet your your misos have been fermenting forever. I mean, I, I don't quite know how long the, 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 in Southeast Asia you would ferment them for, but months, months compared to weeks in, in the world of cheese. Right. Next uh, question. Yes. Um, Tom, there is a lot more questions we are, we are, we are far just... Away, far away, let's have another one. But I will, I will just kind of drift away from those questions and save it for later. But I would like to kind of just kind of dwell into your professional life a bit more. Okay. And uh, talk about your typical day at work. Uh, Harvey and Brockless, you work for them. Please give us a brief uh, of Harvey and Brockless and... Oh, I know it's, okay. a, it's a long segment here, which is going to be, but if you can just probably also highlight how the COVID-19 has affected your business and whether it has affected, and if yes, to what extent? Oh, gosh, yes. Well, look at me now. I'm, I'm in a T-shirt. Uh, I should be in a nice bow tie. Uh, yes, I, I, I partly miss it. I, I really did need a sabbatical, and I think to me, it's given me a kind of a, a break and I can go out and down the end of my garden, which I, 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 I hope, yeah, I'll show you. Let's show you a bit of my garden. Down the end of my garden, yeah. I have a shed. Now, what you can just work out is something white down there. That's the corner of my grand project. And I, and I love that stuff. It's this giant Lego project. And, and I'm uh, building a, a, an artist studio down there. So that, that's another part of my life. Um, so Harvey and Brockless, uh weren't expecting this. No one told us, no one gave us any warning. Um, we, we are successful and in part, we have been massively uh, 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 hit by our success. So for example, um, we, we, we look after some beautiful customers as I touched on, uh, Pressure Mangerie, Leon, Pod, um, Nando's, for example. So, uh, if you're trading with these guys, you're doing you're doing vast amounts of stock. We're, we're, we at at any one time would would need to hold 
about five million pounds worth of stock. Now, that means that when the virus hit, the doors closed, no more orders from, from, from Pratt. What do I do with five million pounds worth of stock? Now, now to, to throw this a bit further forward, that Harvey and Brockless are specialists. We look after your needs. So you, 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 the top chef said, turn around to me and say, Tom, I need to feed, you know, a half a million people every week on, on, on a sliced baguette. And I haven't got time to slice that baguette. It needs to fit into a baguette that is four centimeters wide, 16 centimeters long. Will you cut me a piece of cheese to fit into that? And we'll say, yes, we'll find a way of doing it. We'll commission that cheese. We'll commission the slicing machine. We will get a slice of cheese to fit into your baguette. Nando's approached us about a year and a half ago and said, look, we've offered chicken wings for many years and we want something to offer the vegetarian, the non-meat eating half of your family. Don't forget, you go to Nando's with your girlfriend. She might not want chicken wings. What are they going to offer? Well, let, they said, let's, let's, let's offer something with halloumi in. So we said, oh, okay, uh, halloumi is a fold. It's a fold of cheese with a, with a gap in the middle. So, so, you know, it's not a product you really want to work with. If you cut that cheese, you're going to get a bit of one half and a bit of the other half, and it'll fall in half. Uh, and, and so Nando said, well, what can we do? We said, we, we will find out for you. And we developed a product. It's a Nando's, uh, sorry, it's a halloumi finger. So in other words, it's a finger of halloumi, which they deep fry and they sell as, as halloumi sticks. And, and, and we start off thinking, yeah, 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 it could be a good product. It went mental. It went mental. We are, we, we are the biggest buyers of halloumi, I think, in Europe, if not the world. We, uh, Nando's went... But it's not just Nando's. The, the, every decent fast food outlet said, that's a brilliant idea. We'll have some of that. Where do you get it from? Well, you get it from Harvey and Brockles. So all of a sudden, we just have tons and tons of halloumi going through our hands. Wow. We, the, the halloumi that we, we cut for it was commissioned to go to be a block style, big block. It weighs about 1.1 kilos. And, we'll, and we've developed slicing machines that will, that will feed into. But of course, that means that when the virus hits, no one like Sainsbury's is ready for this. Why would Sainsbury's want a 1.1 kilo block of halloumi? It's totally dysfunctional. The result is I have a million pounds worth of halloumi sitting in Bassey. Uh, what do I do with it? Any good ideas, guys? <laughs> anyway. It's quite long dated. I'm, oh, we're optimistic. We're all like Nando's. God bless them. We've opened up the doors, and we're beginning to see the churn again. And 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 we're all very excited for the future. And I think we're going to wing it, uh, and we're going to get out of out of this dreadful thing. Um, in the meantime, we have 500 staff. We've already lost two or three due to the virus. But nevertheless, the the the, the nature of the beast is. We uh, have got the vast majority of myself are on, are on leave, uh, waiting for our, our moment to return. Um, we've got a skeleton crew, um, a bunch of very enthusiastic guys who are there in the warehouse. We, we have normally 3,000 products, and we've whittled them down to about 800. Who'd, who'd carry stock when there's no business? So if your Claridge's and you're phoning up today, as Claridge's are phoning up today because they're feeding National Health Service, and it's wonderful. They've even got a drive-through food outlet. Brilliant, it's brilliant. Uh, and, but they're needing stuff. And of course, we're saying, no, you, you can't have that because it's on our list. But we have something else, and we're, 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 we're showing them what we've got. Uh, so there is business out there. It's not the same, sh same shape as before. Uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're there. And we'll, uh, we'll unwind this, ravel it upwards, so we might bring an extra sort of 20 people into work next week and, and, and 50 the next week and, and so forth and, and expand our range back outwards. But for the best part of three, four weeks, we've had commercial waste disposal trucks outside our building taking tons 
and tons of cheese and just mushing it up, taking it off. God, that's where some horrific places. Are you working with some charities? We work with a great many charities. Um, in truth, our products are not suitable. I mean, what would you do with a, a 16 kilos, you know, big pot of cream cheese? Well, if you're the Ritz, you'd use them for your, your afternoon sandwiches. But most cream, most, most charities just wouldn't know what to do with that much product. It's just the scale is wrong. It just doesn't work with them. They, all they wanted was a little... You know, a 150 gram jar of cream cheese to put in a in a box. The decanting process. What sell by date do you put on on a product if you decant it yourself? You know, of course, the answer is well, you're not qualified to do it, so don't do it. You'll only go and kill someone. Um, so it is not moving product is not easy, and and we found it really very difficult actually to to move product going out of date. Now, uh, throw into this insurance. You might say, oh, yeah, don't worry, we're insured. That was no, my next question. No, we're not insured. No one seems to recognize that the government closed our customers. The customers didn't want to close. The government told them to close. So in other words, this is orchestrated from the center. And we have all of this product, a problem, um, it could, it could be addressed by, by insurance. Um, but at the moment, there's some very interesting legal claims where Hiscooks in, in particular are saying, I, I don't know whether you're aware about how insurance works, but there's one called uh, business um, uh, interruption insurance. In other words, yeah, something else. Right. And they're saying, well, no, viruses are outside that space. We're going, no, it isn't. It's orchestrated. This is a part of what? This is a bigger thing. And so there's a litigation in place. It's way beyond that. My pay grade to know how it's going to go. Um, but so, yeah, maybe in, in 10 years' time, we'll get an insurance payback pay, pay mm -hmm. for this. But at the moment, we're staring at £5 million of wastage. And uh, that alone break our backs so we're borrowing money to cut to fill that space and of course that borrowing money I, uh, I, I talked to some of the students about this but actually we make very very little money so in 100, 110 million pounds of trade we might make only a million and a half of profit less than one percent it's on that cusp uh, but we are a profitable business and we have we did have some wonderful customers and hopefully they'll be back and in the longer run it will it will fix itself so for my day yeah. job at the moment, I'm building my wonderful project down the garden. My day job normally would be based on the phones and on the internet. Anyone who deals with me like you do realize, don't text Tom because it's a waste of time. Everybody will email me. Just email me. No, don't leave a voice message. Just email me. There's enough systems. It's confused me. So just one system emails and i will be dealing with chefs asking for recommendations chefs asking me for better prices chefs asking me for tom i've got a banquet i've got six thousand people coming what the hell do i serve them and please can you portion it to two to 200 grand pieces um, because they'll be going on banqueting on a banqueting board in the middle of the table uh, and i'll be jiggering with one chef or another and it's wonderful every day is different and uh, I, we spend our time apologizing too. Don't forget, we, 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 we can balls up just like the next people. So, you know, I will have a driver who breaks something in kitchens and I will have a forklift driver who will break something as he's loading a truck, you know, that this sort of thing needs an mm. apology somewhere down the line. So I'm a senior guy and I spent my time telling great chefs that we didn't intentionally piss him off. But uh, that turned out to be what we did. Hey, uh, you mentioned about British Airways as one of your clients. Yeah. I'm not sure whether you heard about the news about British Airways just dwindling its size. Yeah. Are you are you expecting a few of the other clients of yours to just... Yeah, very much so. Suit? Very much so. We, we are not coming out of this virus into a world of the same scale as before. I mean, yeah. in, in fairness, you can see it. You can see it by the sheer number of restaurants struggling to stay in business even before this virus. 
we are ma in central London. We are massively oversubscribed with with, with restaurant seats. It, that okay. completely needs to change. That there are profitable models, but you can hear it uh, with, with the kind of James Italian the rest of it. There are. It's very easy to expand. It feels great if you're the boss, if you're a worker, if you're in the middle of the, the maelstrom. That you know the restaurants should never have been opened in the first place. Mm. There, are, there are just too many similar restaurants, too many formulaic restaurants. You have a bad experience here. You don't go elsewhere. You talk to your 10 friends, in my case, two, or my dog. Uh, and and, and we, do, we don't go there again. You know what I mean? So there's so much can go wrong. And um, uh, it's, 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 it's tragic. And okay. Uh, well, I think we'll, there will we'll, be great restaurants opening, and, and I, but it will never be on the same scale as before. How do you identify a high quality cheese from a lower one? It's a good question. Of course, it's very interesting. Of course, uh, high quality is totally up to the uh, is an objective objective question. Uh, I think if we have if we could separate that out with cheeses that I personally like, and if to cheeses that I would serve if I was in fine dining and, and I was serving a, a bottle of Petrus over here and the, bo the bottle was 500 quid, what would I serve cheese-wise with a of, of the highest level of wines? I think is the question, really. Um, well, I, I would say you're looking at classicism. You're looking at classicism. You're looking at something with a high degree of pedigree. So it's no, it's no point showing them uh, a, a, a modern construct. It has no nobility. Now, I, I know that sounds snobby, and I'm not, I really work away from snobbiness. But, but I think if you're fine, you, you've got a, a, an absolute top end fine wine, you're looking for a nobility that is on the same level as, as that wine. I would, wouldn't expect you to serve a, a, a dodgy lump of bread. I would expect you to be serving fine fine French bread with it. Um, I, 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 but when it comes to the cheeses, uh, so we're looking at nobility, we're looking at a degree of, um, of maturity that, that is outside the retail point. In other words, if, if I'm a retailer, I will, my, most of my products will have a three, four week shelf life. If, I, if I'm in, I'm in we're, we're sitting with Marcus, Marcus Waring and we're having a lovely bottle of, of big red, I would expect my cheeses to be at point, at really at that mark. Now, the question, of course, is what is that mark? Well, some cheeses come ready to go. Year and a half years, that sort of space. People will flog you the three-year-old one thing. Oh, it's magnificent. No, it isn't. It's past that point. It, and what's dictating that? Well, I think it's about that fact that when I'm sitting after my third or fourth glass of Petrus, and I would say, you know, that cheese is too dry. Needing, need some more moisture in it. Um, uh, 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 other cheeses will be sticky. They'll be difficult to serve. In other words, uh, if I'm on British Airways, I would never portion that cheese. It's just Im impractical. Um, the, uh, uh, the product sold in Sainsbury's is a three-week shelf life. The product that I would want to sell, Marcus, should be in the last week of it. Now, I've got chefs over there who might say, Tom, if, it, if I have a product with, with three-day shelf life, I'm afraid I, I can't work with that. I need a longer shelf life. And that's fine. And so my job as a, as a wholesaler is to say, right, I've got cheeses that are in that condition for Marcus, and I've got longer life, firmer, portionable cheeses for those chefs over there. So, so the cheeses that Marcus should end up with will be resonant. They'll be large. So what does that mean? to you, the consumer, well, I would say, close your eyes, take a nibble of the cheese, the smallest little nibble, and it should just fill your head. Now, you might call that umami, that's slightly simple, but I would say it's resonant like, like a cello, whereas a young cheese, sometimes it has no sound at all, it's just a lump, a little laughing cow, it doesn't, there's no, no noise there at all. So I would look to a kind of size, a dimension. Now, so that is how that little lump fills your head. But then you swallow. 
and the flavor is still there. It's still in me. And, and you think, whoa, I can, it's in my soul. In other words, a cello, when the guy stops pulling his bow across, across, the, across the strings, stays in you. It's resonant. It's, it's kind of penetrating in you. Mm. And a great cheese does the same. And, and, and I talk about, so, so, so great cheeses have a noise, a different dimension to them. If we get this right, the fabulous wine will also have the same resonance and the cheese will have the same resonance. In other words, that you and I are drinking, enjoying cheese and wine, we don't, we don't have to have them one after the other very quickly because the cheese has got so little flavor. We can take our time. So we'll sit, yeah. sit back and talk about Anthony's bad behavior and all the other things. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, we'll, uh, and we'll have a laugh. And after two minutes, we'll have a glass of wine. And, and in other words, there's a, there's a, you space things out better when you've got this great mobility. So, okay, thank so, you, Tom. So a mixture of an answer there. Sorry, I hope okay. that helps. That's, it's very generic and it's very difficult to just put a very specific answer to that. But we have some specific questions. If you can just briefly move on from here. Oh, what is the best yeah. type of cheese used for desserts? Ah, you see, no, that's a good question. I mean, ricotta for me has a role in a great many desserts. I mean, to me, the the the, the Polish cheesecake, which is fluffy and light and, and, and not dense and heavy. Now, in that, like an American cheesecake, now don't get me wrong, I'm not a baker, and many of you are much better at this than I am. But to me, most cheesecakes are heavy, dense, over-creamy. To me, my favorite cheesecakes are those baked ones, light, fluffy. <coughs> Ricotta is playing principal role there. Bulking it up, light, very low fat. Um, uh, and I would say it's, it's, it's a great carrier. So in other words, if I was making uh, capolettis or raviolis, and I want something just plump up, plump up my pasta, uh, and carry maybe salmon or some other flavor just, just within it, but not, so you wouldn't have a, just a lump of fish in, in your ravioli, you'd have a, a looser, lighter. I, so I would say, uh, I haven't really answered the question because you mentioned dessert, but I would say, let's make it simple, make it elemental. So in other words, it's just a body to carry forward a, a, a volume and, 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 and low, with low fat. So ricotta would be my winner on ricotta. that. Great. Uh, the best temperature and places to places to store the cheeses. Well, um, yes, difficult one really. Um, I, I, you could be sticking it in a great big fridge, and and I think actually, at the end of the day, that is the right answer. You, you'll also have the question about cling film. Should I cling film a cheese? Well, only if it's cold. If a cheese is warm or hot, like it's come out of service, it's been out there in service for three hours, don't cling film it. It's, it's breathing, it's panting. It it's really wants to just cool down and let the moisture come out of it. Most of us have got moldy cheeses in our fridges because you cling filmed warm cheeses and, mm -hmm. and you yeah. need to let the cheese cool down and then and then cling film it and allowing that that kind of effervescent moisture just to just to come off now what that means for you guys as chefs means you've probably got a box in your fridge i i always i always go back to those old fish boxes you know the polystyrene ones and there's naked cheeses in there unwrapped naked cheeses so when the cheeses come out of service lift up the box put them in there in other words you don't attempt to wrap them and the box itself will stop the atmosphere in there drying the cheeses out and, and stop you know how your your company chef will put a box or something on top of your cheeses you want a flat surface so the cheeses crush don't crush on the rack it, uh, because actually oddly as a wholesaler i should recommend you destroy your cheeses but um i would say you really don't want to crush your cheeses and i've got countless examples of chefs having to replace crushed cheeses from the night before because someone in the morning has put gravy on top of it you know? mm. okay but going anyway. back to the, the temperature would mm. you say idly no, so no i would say hold back from what people recommend that, uh, 
in, in truth, all cheeses should be kept below 10, below 10 degrees. Okay. There's a sweat point over between 10 and, and 14 degrees. And it's that sweat point, which means if it's wrapped in cling film, you're going to get mold or moisture and then mold developing between the packaging and the cheese. So below 10 cheeses don't sweat. So uh, most of us are, are living in the Alps. So 10 degrees or below are just not possible today in this hot room. My cheeses would just be sweaty and horrible if I had them out now. So I'd stick them in my fridge. Well, actually I'm not allowed cheeses in that fridge. I have my cheese in my garage in there where, where my wife lets me keep the really scary stuff. Thank you, Tom. Very briefly, your opinion about vegan cheeses. Okay, I've got quite a few very valid vegan cheeses. They're um, really good attempts, uh, credible attempts. Um, I, 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 for one, and I, I think I might belong to a whole group of people, have a problem understanding why you'd make a vegan equivalent of a, of a, of a meat product. We're like saying vegan bacon. Let's make it vegan. It's about as confusing as that. I don't get my head around it. Um, I, I've got, amongst the best examples, I have a vegan parmesan, I think made out of, uh, I'm not quite sure what, I think it's a peanut or a cashew based. Now, honestly, I think it is cashew based. The result is a madly expensive parmesan. You know, it's, how, it's three times the price the, of normal parmesan. How it's can they manage the costing? The costing, yeah, well, costing because unfortunately, there's a category of people who just say, well, let's just buy, it's only 150 grams. It doesn't look very much. Of course, they don't realize per kilo, it's three times the price of normal Parmesan. I would turn around and say, that cow that made that Parmesan had a great life, wonderful life. You should go out there and watch those cows living in, living. they're very happy beasts. So I would say, as a, let's call them it a, a 5% of your menu that wasn't vegan. And just make sure that they're very happy cows. And uh, there are unhappy cows out there. And I'm not sure if I should answer that question. You're going to ask me the question about where are the unhappy cows. But there are some. And but as for as for Parmesan, I think most of the cows are quite happy. Okay. What's the best cheese to make the cheese sauce? But there is Good other question. questions that are, but I'm Good not question. going to. No, there's more at, more in this question than you realize. But okay. of course, it's all about the way caseins milk proteins behave at, in a hot temperature. Well, on the whole, they hate it. Uh, and nearly all cheeses made with a, an acid style. Now understand that means young goat cheeses, but it also extends all the way through to cheddars, chicofillies. They, they have a very high acid element to them. And that means that they hate melting. They, you get to a point around 55 degrees where the structure of the casing just really doesn't ever become an agglutin, a, 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 what are we going to call it, uh, an amalgam, a, 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 a cohesion. Um, to me, I, I think the answer lies in, again in the Alps. I think you've got to go to the cooked cheeses, meaning the curds, set with far less acid than you, you, you're familiar with, far less bite on a Gruyere than on a Lancashire. Uh, and so it's the Gruyere you want, and we're looking for an old Gruyere. Um, it's going to collapse, it's going to become cohesive, you're going to get an emulsion from your source. So we all acknowledge it's not about what it tastes like, it's about everything else. So I would say look for the emulsion, look for a cave age Gruyere. Um, we sell a fabulous one matured and made above Lucerne in a, a, a group of caves owned by an outfit called Kaltback. And mm -hmm. Kaltback, uh, they're slightly insane, and they dug their own hole in the Alps and they bury their cheeses in it. And so Kaltbach Gruyères are typically 18-month, 24-month um, uh, Gruyères, and they've got fabulous depth. I, I would like to think of you of describing a kind of symphonia. Now, we talked about the cello earlier, but I'm talking a big, an orchestral movement, deep, resonant Beethoven kind of, 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 of music from a big old Gruyere. So don't mess around. If, if you're a classic chef, 
don't mess around with your mixing your cheeses. You meet many people saying, oh, I, I put young, young, young cheddar with a bit of Parmesan and it brings a bit of this and a bit of that. I think we're classicists. I think let's go for uh, nobility, go for one answer. Let's go for a cave-aged uh, Gruyere or Beaufort or Appenzella or one of the great old, old Alpine cheeses from 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 the Swiss or the French Alps. Okay. Uh, apart from halloumi, what other cheeses are great for grilling directly on a barbecue? So, um, so, so the answer is what 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 holds on a kebab? Well, not many. It's a really a real a conundrum. The way halloumi is made by plunging into boiling whey. Those proteins are so compressed and so tight by the damage. It's like bacon in, in a frying pan. It, they, the proteins tighten in on themselves. And it's that tightness that allows me to stick a kebab stick through the middle of it, and it will bind. The, the proteins are so mangled by the boiling way. Um, so it'll bind, it'll tighten on its, on its protein. Uh, I would say I can't think of any off offhand. There's certainly other halloumis out there. I think we should be talking about Chinese cheeses that in Yunnan province. There are there's a cheese called fan cheese, which is uh, prepared on bamboo. You should, you should Google this, guys. This is a this is one of the rarest cheeses in the world, and they've they've twisted the cheese around bamboo and they hang it from the roof. And you untwist it and you and you barbecue it. And I believe, and don't get me wrong, I've not seen it done, but the, where the stick was drawn from the, the coil, it's natural that you put your stick in for the barbecuing. So the answer is there's only one that I can think of in the world other than the halloumi, and that's the Yunnan fan cheese, uh, which I'm afraid... I, I haven't... If you prepared me for that question, I could have shown you a picture of, but I'm afraid you'll have to Google it. Okay, you know, you mentioned about we mentioned about some charity and things like this. Uh, what are you yeah. doing with the cheeses, and also some? Well, if we could touch, if we could touch on that just briefly, that that six weeks ago we had five million pounds worth of cheese. The vast majority of that surplus cheese is now in the waste disposal unit. Okay, uh, and and the six weeks ago we had cheeses virtually. I just didn't know what to do with this. Now, okay. So, there so, is so we're not carrying a kind of a cheese that we can give away at this stage. We may have cheeses that we can help with, we can cheeses that cost, that sort of thing, but yeah. the, the, the days of being able to give cheese away are now behind us. We've, that's, I have something from Cynthia. One time she saw a cheese with worm inside it. Do people typically use this for cooking or? No. It's it's now several things about this. One of which is it's been banned by the EEC. The the banning of cheeses with with maggots or worms in wasn't done because it's disgusting. It was done because we're not allowed to eat living creatures by European law. You have to eat a cooked creature or a dead creature. You can't eat the living creature. Um, so we're not allowed to do it. There are a whole bunch of people who basically ignore this. Um, and you could, you'd have no problem in northern Italy, in the Piedmont, Sicily, Sardinia, or in the French in Corsica, or up in the French, um, maybe not the French Pyrenees, but nevertheless, it's certainly in, the, in, the, in Corsica, where people are deliberately encouraging flies to lay eggs in the cheese. They're called many things. But... The uh, the moussa, the the are uh, uh, the style of cheeses, uh, and and the, and the and the maggot that's laid in the cheese is called lombrico, and they're jumping maggots. They will spring. Now, now don't get me wrong, I'm not allowed to buy these. So the biggest problem with this is I'd love to bring them into lectures, and I have historically brought cheeses with maggots in. We we can't. I mean, only it's by an accident, really. Um, but you know you've got a cheese with the right maggot in if you try to touch it. Now, don't get me wrong. The maggots are very, very small. They're only about, about two, three, three millimeter, four millimeters long. And if you touch it, it would jump away from you. Boing! 
and that's a lumbrico. It's exciting, isn't it? And 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 at that point, you can eat it. Um, there are they are uh, outlawed. You can't buy them overtly over a counter. You'd need to be talking to your friend Mario, who says, "Oh, Mario, do you think you can get me one of these?" And Mario thinks, "Yeah, I know somebody who makes this," and he'll go and, and source his cheese. So the question, in theory, will never come up. This is not a maggot cheeses are are not available to you as a commercial chef. So they just shouldn't be there. Um, mm-hmm. What it is, and should we be worried about maggots? No, of course we shouldn't be worried about maggots. Maggots is just an advanced state of maturity. It's no, not really that much different from the bacteria or the fungus. Or I also have cheese with cheese mites in. So in other words, a little weevily creature you'll find on many dry cheeses. A maggot is just a bigger version of the same thing. And it will have lived its life digesting the cheese. It is essentially just more broken down cheese and it will give us more flavors so when somebody says oh my old maggot cheese i used to buy in corsica tasted fantastic yep i i totally believe that it just further down the state of maturity than most normal cheeses um so yes a question with no answer really that cheese should not be available to you okay i just want to do a small wrap up by asking you few questions three questions as a quick fire round is that okay for you uh, uh, yeah let's see what the answers are yeah 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 okay what's your favorite cheese oh let's let's go for a cheese with a lot of history in other words let's go chevrey the simplest youngest of goat cheeses because as we all know it's the oldest it's madly old so here i'm offering something that's a day old but over here i'm saying that is ten and a half thousand years old and I love that. Isn't that lovely? That balance of, of life. Anyway, what's the next question? Okay. If you want a cheese maker, what would I become? What would I make? Well, I, I, I have cheese makers out there, wonderful people that I, I think, oh, my God, I would to be an issue. So, for example, um, uh, Charles Martel, who makes Stinking Bishop. Charles Martel is not a normal person. He lives in a kind of a space of his own. He is a food historian. My whole subject is about reading food history. He, he is not just somebody who reads. He has the real deal out there on his fields. He has a farm in, in, in Gloucestershire. He has oxen. He has a plough, which is pulled by the oxen. The guy is the real thing. So he goes out there and practices what he reads. He goes out there and he, his apple orchards are, are, aren't just growing anything. They're growing ancient breeds of fruit. He knows them. He, you know, he studies this. He, he makes cheese. Is he going to make a normal cheese? No, he's going to make a, a, a product that illustrates the great Cistercian orders of Gloucester Cathedral. And that's cheese. Okay. You think, oh, my God, that's just wonderful and of course what it is is a cheese that belongs to fine wines big ciders big glass of calvados and you might think well what are they drinking in 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 in, in uh, glass well they might be drinking cider but they're probably on beer so we're slight you know let's, let's not blame the good people of gloucester but let's worship at the feet of charles martel okay yeah okay uh, the favorite chef you work with oh i have lots I have not. I, I work with many, but I suppose let's take cooking out of it just briefly because uh, because they're, they're great chefs. You just don't hang around for 30 years uh, as anything but a brilliant chef. I look at, at the way that they, people, people manage stress. And years back, we would have a chef who'd throw things at you and, and, and abused you and abusing people around him to deal with stress, his own stress. He was just taking it out of people. Today, to me, the people who really illustrate greatness are those who just could just take it and, and delegate it. In other words, bring on junior chefs so that they are they themselves are now running big hotels. So let's let's just take a, a friend of mine, uh, Paul Bates. Paul Bates, exec chef of the Grosvenor House, mm-hmm. all the way through his journey. I mean, I knew Paul Youngs back uh, working with. Uh, oh, oh gosh! Oh, long time back, working at, at the Souffle at the Meridian, and mm-hmm. and 
you know, he once he's, he's no longer, he is now a head chef, he's been bringing forward chefs and people who work with him are now running five-star hotels too. He's brought them forward. He's, 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 he's given them responsibilities. He's, he's lifted them. And now they are up there as well. And I just think it's a fantastic journey to be on, giving back to others what, what you've done. And, and we both know that that man is standing there being given banquets, typically throughout September, October, November, thousand people a night will be sitting in there. He's working on products that he's got a pre-order weeks in ahead. Does he know the number of people sitting down? Does he know what they'll order on the night? No. Can he cope with the pressure? Absolutely. You know, stand tall, be strong, be solid, be, be graceful and giving. And, and yeah, and there are many so the answer is always. He's one of, one of my one great favorites. Uh, but okay. I, I have other people who just, oh, yeah. I, 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 Gordon Ramsay, I've always admired Gordon Ramsay. I've known him right from when he was at, at, at La Tonclaire. And, and he's thrown his toys around. And, and I, his journey has been slightly different. But look at the man. He, he was just a working chef. And where is he now? He's one of the top, top uh, celebrities in the world. Um, that is awesome. That's awesome. You've got to take your hat off. And, and he hasn't lost it. He hasn't taken those drugs and fallen off like, the, like so many did on that journey up there. He didn't stop and say, I've reached my limit. Just how fantastic is that? You know? Um, uh, oh, gosh, there's, there's lots and lots out there. But yes, yeah, it's been a fantastic journey. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Tom. What could be the most unique condiment to complement that cheese plate? Something out of the box. Isn't that a good question? Indeed, it you is. You know, I, 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 have you come across people trying coffee with cheese? Not yet. Um, uh, coffee is, is, is very complex, uh, and so I would say a an old gouda. This is not invented by me. Is the Dutch have been doing this for some time? An espresso, old gouda, or big cheddar, acidic resonant lots of lots of proteins falling apart in there lots of lots of umami cup of coffee and, and I, I it's it's quite funny you just put it out in front of people go and they go oh what's going on and and you can claim credit for it all it's wonderful yeah so yeah, yes i would say coffee is outside people's space at the moment but in a few years time we all know they'll have caught up and we're moving on uh, there's no reason why, why um, um, uh, other products like um anchovies chocolate shouldn't work but i would say for the time being let's do coffee okay great thank you tom uh there has been so many comments about this session you know an hour well, of this session with tom is not good enough or not enough so tune in for the next session and until then thank you all thanks toms thank everybody bye very well everybody Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond Food and Wine, a Le Cordon Bleu podcast. Keep up to date with all our news and episodes by following us on social media or by signing up to our newsletter. Links are included in the episode notes. Until next time, a bientôt!